Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Early sexologists offered a wide range of explanations to account for the diversity of human sexuality, from the effects of climate to epilepsy to an individual's profession. But for a variety of reasons, scholars in the field of gender and sexuality studies have largely ignored or dismissed these attempts to understand the causes of sexual deviation. Today, we're talking to Benjamin Kahan, Assistant Professor of English and Women's and Gender Studies at Louisiana State University. As a fellow this year at the center, Benji has been working on a new book in which he argues that we can learn a great deal about how current attitudes on these topics develop by revisiting antiquated theories of human sexuality and examining the context in which they emerged. Good afternoon, Benji. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Talk to us a bit about the formation of the academic discipline of sexology. Yeah, that's a really excellent question. Thank you, Robert. I just edited a book that came out earlier this year, which is called Psychopathia Sexualis from 1844. And it's by a man named Heinrich Kahn, who was born in Vienna in 1816. And it's a really exciting book because Michel Foucault has said that it was the most important book in codifying what came to be known as sexuality. And sexology, uh, so it starts in the kind of 1840s, 1850s as a kind of homophile discourse. And it's a kind of academic discourse composed of many, many disciplines, psychology, anthropology, literature, that had the aim of helping jurists and legal people deal with these new sexual formations. So when somebody, say, exposes themselves to a crowd, are they someone who is in need of a psychiatrist? Are they someone who's in need of a priest? Are they someone who's in need of a medical doctor? And these are the questions that sexology was trying to help judges and lawyers and jurists answer. You're talking in your project about what you term a historical etiology of sexuality. What's different or new about that approach? The question of etiology has been a really fraught one in sexuality studies. People have been hesitant to talk about whether sexuality was acquired or congenital, whether it was in the body or in the mind or whether it was out in the environment and part of development. And the reason for that hesitancy is because questions of immutable characteristics, uh, which is a legal category which uh, would grant gay people special protection if homosexuality were shown to be immutable, unchanging. And so my project takes a different tact and to try to say that these etiologies can provide us with, on the one hand, lost models of sexuality. So take, for example, the famous statement by the modernist writer Juna Barnes, who says, I'm not a lesbian, I just loved Thelma. And I think that sexuality scholars would tend to think of this as a kind of homophobic disavowal or Barnes's effort not to be understood as a lesbian writer or as even patently false given her other female lovers. But my approach thinks about it as an ideological statement, one where Barnes's desiring field contains not a host of sexed bodies and objects, but a singular one where behaviors and sexual acts engaged in with this individual would in no way pattern 
future desires or pleasures. The cause of Barnes's desire seems to be her object. And in fact, we could even think of it as a kind of romantic statement that she loves Thelma so much that she's willing to overcome the social taboo of lesbianism as well as her alleged heterosexuality. And so in this way, my project is aimed at recovering these now largely vestigial and forgotten uh, modes and categories of sexuality. So you're talking, your title also refers to what you term a great paradigm shift. What does that mean? On the one hand, I, as I was saying, start to tell the story of these kind of thousand aberrant sexualities that we've now forgotten. But when it comes to the great paradigm shift, I'm interested in tracing how we've shifted from a thousand aberrant sexualities to one homosexuality and how the great paradigm shift itself refers to the emergence of the hetero homo binary, which is to say dividing people by the gender of the person that they're attracted to. And so in this way, my project is really about telling the story about how that happened. How did it come to be that we divided people in that sexual organization, how we created that sexual organization. And how did that come to be? It's a kind of a long story, but I think that one of the things that happened was that sexuality had to be compartmentalized away from other sorts of vices. So for example, in the 18th century, you would see that gambling or alcoholism could be a sin that would be uh, similar in some way to what we would now think of as uh, sexual practices like masturbation or sodomy. And so there was a kind of organization around genitality that happened over a long period of time. Are you also using literary examples? Absolutely. One of the things that I think is under-examined about sexology is how literary the sexologists were, both in their terminology, so the words sadism comes from the writer Marquis de Sade, and the word masochism comes from Sakur Masak. And my project is really interested in a kind of what I call a revolving door between literature and sexology, thinking about the way that these sexologists themselves were men of letters. So, and I use the term men advisedly because they were almost all men. Um, Havelock Ellis, for example, wrote sonnet sequences and edited Renaissance plays. Edward Prime Stevenson wrote novels. So thinking about how they themselves were engaging with literature and also how literary people were engaging with sexology. So famously, Radcliffe Hall's uh, character in The Well of Loneliness is reading sexological works. Richard Bruce Nugent's characters uh, from the Harlem Renaissance also read sexological works. And my project is really interested then in both literariness of sexuality and also thinking about literature itself as a kind of vernacular sexology. How do you sort of navigate the boundary line, if there is a boundary line, between literature and history? It's a great question. Yeah, I think that literature is a kind of, I think of it as sort of like dense data packets of history that we can explore and mine and use in order to tell stories about sexual subjectivities. I think today is a really exciting time to be working in sexuality studies Attitudes are changing, laws are changing. In many ways, the field of sexuality studies was founded with the goal of overturning the Supreme Court decision, Bowers v. Hardwick, and that happened with 
the advent of Lawrence v. Texas. How does this approach, how is it parallel or how is it different from, say, Toral Moy's opposition to the two-sex model? I think part of the change that I want to narrate is connected to Toral's work. One of the things that the sexologists posit is that when women are feminists, there's the fear, and uh, you see this staged in Virginia Woolf's Orlando, there's the fear that they're going to become men because they're engaging in masculine behavior, i.e. voting. And the actual fear is that their hips will narrow and their breasts will shrink and that they will actually become men. How can your project avoid jumping into the deep waters of the discussion of whether homosexuality is congenital or acquired? My project definitely wants to try to kind of avoid that. I think that the question is undecidable and too freighted. And so in this way, my project uses a kind of weak theory model where I'm interested in thinking about what it means historically that people thought about sexuality in particular ways. To give an example, Richard Burton, who could justifiably be considered the most interesting man in the 19th century, he was a swashbuckler and the first, the first white man to go to Mecca, had a, a theory of what he calls the Sotatic Zone, uh, named after the Greek poet Sotatis. And this zone posited that huge swaths of the earth made one gay. And the idea that enormous sections of the earth would be the container of sexuality rather than, say, the body is a, I think, really different model of sexuality than, than we're used to thinking about. In addition to a project that is going to hopefully influence and affect the discourse regarding sexuality scholarship, what's your hope for the project in terms of addressing a more general audience? What's the takeaway? I think that sexuality is one of the most important dimensions of people's lives. People spend a lot of time looking for love. People spend a lot of time figuring out who they are. And I think that my project, particularly in its narration of the emergence of the hetero-homo binary, can help people understand a story about who they are and where they've come from, how they might have come to find the identity that they found, how that identity was forged, how communities were built around it. And so I really hope that it'll be a story that has broad appeal for people interested in their own personal explorations. Thank you so much, Benji, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center. 